Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty Father, we come before you as children, your beloved children, and we need you to love us and feed us this morning. I pray that you would feed us with a vision of your glory and power and of your everlasting, eternal covenant love to us this morning. And so I pray, build us up, strengthen us, Lord, for whatever we may face in our lives and in the world to come. And so we commend ourselves to your love and care in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, if you would, go ahead and turn to, with me to Psalm 63. You can find that um, in the red prayer books in the pews in front of you, Psalm 63, not the burgundy one, but the brighter red one, uh, page 346, page 346. The book of Psalms originated out of Israel's response to God, and these Psalms, all 150 of them, were collected and arranged in the form that we have in order to provide future generations resources and materials in order to shape faithful responses in us to God. Yet, they're not simply a record of faithful human responses to God. They're also to us holy scripture. That is, the divine, the triune God's address to us. God speaks to us through the Psalms. And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 63, we need to attend to two things when we look at it. First, we need to hear God's voice addressing us. We need to hear God's voice addressing us. And second, we need to follow Psalm 63 as a model of faithful response to God during the wilderness times. But before we look at God's address and the model of faithful response that Psalm 63 provides, we need to set the context for this psalm. Unfortunately, our prayer book does not have the, the headings for the Psalms that you will find in any other translations you find in the Hebrew and the Old Greek. And so the, any other translation would have this at the beginning of this Psalm. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This heading is intentionally vague. It's general because it was intended to be read as David's model response to God when he was in the wilderness fleeing for his life. And you might think, how many times do you need to flee from people into the wilderness for a model response? Well, more than once, and David has that. David in 1 first, in first Samuel flees King Saul. For chapters on end, it recounts his, his sojourn in the desert. And then in 2 Samuel, his own son, Absalom, seeks his life in a coup attempt. And he seeks him and chases him into the wilderness as well. And so this, this heading clues us in to where this psalm or what this psalm in particular is responding to. And in Psalm 63, David gives voice to his wilderness experience as felt isolation. Felt isolation from God where he describes his sense of distance from God as thirst for water. As thirst for water in a barren and dry land. Now, if you went for a walk this past week, or if you go for a walk this upcoming week and you do not take with you water, soon, soon, very soon and very soon, you will be thirsting. You will be thirsting for water. And that just begins to clue us in, begins to clue us into the metaphor, the, the image that David is drawing upon here. For just imagine that kind of heat 
with no water whatsoever available to you, and you're walking in the desert, no shade, the sun is all over you. We're beginning to understand just a bit about what David is talking about. We can begin to imagine the type of thirst that David uses here to describe his felt separation from God and his desire to bridge that distance. Just listen to verse 2. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. The entirety of who David is, soul and body, longs for God in a barren and dry land where there is no water. He's separated from water. He's separated from that to which he longs. David's sense of isolation from God arises from circumstances which he presents in verses 10 through 12. Just listen to those again with me. Those who seek to destroy my life, that's the first thing that's happening to him, shall go down into the earth. Let them fall upon the edge of the sword that they may be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God and all those who swear by him shall be commended. For the mouth, second problem, for the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. David's enemies want to destroy his life by killing him with a sword or, or and or ruining his reputation with slanderous lies. So as David enters the physical wilderness to escape these threats, he's also at the same time entering into a spiritual wilderness, a spiritual battle, as it were, in that he feels isolated, isolated and distant from God. Likewise, each one of us has faced, is facing, or will face that sort of experience where we sense that God is distant from us. The kind of cry that we hear over and over again at times throughout the Psalms, Oh my God, where are you? Where are you? I long for you. I thirst for you, but you're not here to be found We have those moments in life, and that sense of isolation or distance from God in our lives can arise from a variety of of circumstances, whether that's physical health in ourselves or or in others that's waning, whether it's death of a loved one or a close friend, whether it's lies that people may speak about you or malign you, maybe because you're publicly and faithfully standing up for Jesus and abiding by his word. There's a host of reasons, broken relationships and abiding sin that you can never seem to get, uh, get a victory over. All these things for us drop us into what we might call a wilderness experience where we sense that God is distant from us. That we're isolated from him. Psalm 63 is a psalm for these moments. It's a psalm for these sorts of seasons of life. And at times, we do have seasons of life like this. And then during these moments and seasons of life, when we feel isolated from God, we need to hear God's voice addressing us from Psalm 63. And we need to learn the model of faithful response to God recorded here. And so to begin, we need to ask, what is God What is his address to us? What is his voice saying to us in Psalm 63? And God's address is centered in the vision of God that David receives in in the tabernacle, in the sanctuary, in the holy place. Just look at verses 3 and 4 with me again. Thus I have looked upon you, O God, I've looked upon you in your holy place, that I might behold your power and your glory for your loving kindness, your chesed love 
is better than life itself. My lips shall praise you. God gave David, and God is giving you and I this morning, through this psalm and through our gathered worship here in this place, a vision of himself. That's what we gather to do in part, to see God, to see a vision of God as he reveals his glorious power. Glory and power, I think, is probably better understood as like a splendid power. Those words go together as a hen and days, as a glorious power, a splendid power. This vision of God, this vision of God provides us with two soul-sustaining, life-sustaining insights for the wilderness. Here's the first insight. God remains gloriously powerful God remains gloriously powerful despite the sense of isolation, distance, or abandonment that may arise from the circumstances we face. God's glorious power was made visible to David in the holy place, that is in the sanctuary, through Israel's worship, through its sacrifices, and through its processions, through its feast every year after year, through its rituals. And this worship made God's past acts of salvation toward Israel and toward the people as a collective whole and towards each individual person tangible. It made them visible and audible. And one of the chief purposes of worship, one of the chief purposes, not the only purpose, but one of the chief purposes of worship is to recount and reenact the glorious power of God to save his people, to save his people from crushing slavery and barren wildernesses, from entrenched sin and overwhelming circumstances that we all inevitably face in this life. That's what worship in part is about. That's one of the central parts of it, is to reenact and show us again and again each week the glorious power of God. This recounting and reenacting of God's glorious power and past acts of salvation forms within us as worshipers, forms within each one of us hope. This is what David, it forms in David hope, hope that God might yet act again to deliver us from those wilderness moments or those wilderness seasons of life that we may experience. And this hope is based upon the sure vision of God's power recounted and reenacted for us in our worship through word and sacrament. It's made visible to us. It's made real to us and tangible to us, not only to the Israelites in the tabernacle and temple worship, but to us here this morning as we hear the word read, as we hear it preached, as we come to the table, as we sing, we are hearing again and again the glorious power of God that acted in the past to save his people, we're hearing it told to us again in the present to sustain us, to give us a vision of God that enables us to endure the wilderness, even, even those times where we feel or we sense that God is distant from us. And this hope, and this is important, Christ Church, this hope is not contingent upon our internal feelings. This hope is not contingent upon our internal feelings or emotions, the sense of distance or isolation that we may feel. God's glorious power is not weakened when we sense his distance or when we feel isolated from you. And we can all say amen to that. 
Aren't you glad that God's power is not restricted or enabled by your emotions or your feeling about him in your life? Because I can tell you, I would be living a fairly miserable life if God responded to me, if his power was attached to my emotions. That's not devaluing our emotions. Those are real. But God's power is not contingent upon them. And likewise, this hope is not contingent upon external circumstances that we face. And this is why. Because it is firmly rooted in the character and nature of God. This hope is firmly rooted in the character and nature of God that has been on display throughout creation throughout history, redeeming his people from Egyptian slavery, sustaining them through the wilderness, providing for them food and water and enabling their clothes to endure for 40 years and their shoes to last and bringing them across many types of adversities to the land to inhabit, a land full of life and vitality, flowing with milk and honey, as it says there in the Pentateuch. This is the power of God, and it's not contingent upon the circumstances that we face. It's not limited. It's not neutered by them. God remains gloriously powerful despite the sense of isolation, distance, or abandonment that may arise from the circumstances we face. And hear me, I'm not saying that if you have that sense or or that, that feeling, you're in the wrong. David has it. You would have it too if you were running away for your life in the middle of a wilderness, separated. For David, he was separated from Jerusalem, from the epicenter of God's presence in the temple, in the tabernacle there. But we don't allow those emotions to govern us or to shackle God. And this is exactly what the throne room scenes in Revelation remind us of, that no matter what we may face in this life, God remains powerful and in control When Jesus reveals through his angel to John all those visions in Revelation, that is a wilderness experience. Read the book. It's wilderness after wilderness after wilderness. People are chasing God's people. People are going after God's people. God's people are falling away. And throughout that revelation, Jesus knows we need to see a vision of his glorious power. We need to see a vision of the throne room. And so throughout the book, there are these spatterings, these pockets of these visions that we get to see into heaven. And it's to give us a glimpse of God's glorious power, of the slain lamb who has been raised by God's power, who now is worthy and has the authority to take up the scroll and to open its seals. He has authority over history, cosmic history he has power over. We need those visions to sustain us in the wilderness. In those times when we feel like God is distant from us, we need to return here to see again that he is near to us and that his power is at work in this world and present to us. The difficult circumstances that we will face and the real sense of isolation from God that they can evoke in us are unable Listen to this, Christ. They are unable to disempower the slain and risen lamb and his spirit who lives in us. Aren't you, aren't you glad that the circumstances you face in this life are not able to disempower the slain and risen lamb, Jesus Christ? 
We can say amen to that. We can sing songs of praise in response to that. That's the first sustaining insight. The second sustaining insight is this. God's hesed love, his hesed love is even more satisfying than life itself. And you're certainly probably thinking now, what in the world is hesed love? What is hesed love? Well, the word hesed, the Hebrew word hesed, which is here translated loving kindness, is an extremely difficult word to capture in English. There is no English equivalent. I don't even know if there's many equivalents in any other languages. It is such a pregnant term. It is such a, a term full and deep with meaning. So to understand this word, it's, this word, it's best to lay out its various characteristics as they're revealed in Scripture. And so there's a few of them here. These are not, this is not an exhaustive list. We would be here for a rather long time if we exhausted what hesed means. First characteristic, God's hesed love saves his people from disaster and oppressors. Listen to Psalm 103, or 143, verse 12. By your hesed love, silence my enemies. God, use your love to silence and destroy my enemies. Second characteristic, God's hesed love sustains life. You'll hear this throughout the Psalms and throughout the prophets, but this is one expression of it. Psalm 119, verse 88. Preserve my life. Preserve my life according to your hesed love. God's hesed love sustains life. Characteristic three, God's hesed love answers his wrath. And for that, we can be eternally grateful to God. God's hesed love answers his wrath. Micah says of God, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgressions? You do not stay angry forever, but listen to this, but delight to show hesed love. Or just listen to God's voice here in Isaiah 54 verse 8. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. Yet my hesed love, yet my hesed love will have compassion on you. Aren't you glad that God's hesed love answers his anger and wrath? Characteristic four, God's hesed love is enduring, persistent, and everlasting. Listen to Isaiah, just two verses later in Isaiah 54. This is verse 10. Through, though, the mountains, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my hesed love for you will not be shaken. That's how sure it is. That's how enduring it is. The things that we may think are the most enduring in this world, mountains and hills, even if they melt away, God is saying, my hesed love endures. It lasts. It persists. There is no reason to be afraid because it will always be there for you. Listen also to Jeremiah 31, and God here says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now here's the parallel to that. I have drawn you to myself with hesed love. The parallel, everlasting love is parallel to God's hesed love. It's enduring, it persists. Characteristic five, God's hesed love is the basis upon which we may approach God and even enter into his presence. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 5 verse 7, because of your great hesed love, I will enter your house. God's love enables us to enter into his presence. And then the final characteristic we'll 
mentioned here this morning, God's Hesed love is abundant. It is abundant. The Psalms describe the abundant nature of God's Hesed love with cosmic statements like this. God's Hesed love fills the earth. It fills the earth. It extends to the heavens and beyond. And here, and here, the psalmist is channeling Buzz Lightyear. God's Hesed love, God's Hesed love is to infinity and beyond. It stretches to infinity and beyond. At other times, the psalmist and the biblical authors don't want us to miss it, so they say it straightforward. God's Hesed love is great, expansive. God's Hesed love is abundant. God's Hesed love is massive. It's mighty. And so when David states here that God's Hesed love is better than life itself, he's not referring to just one of these characteristics. He's not referring to just one of these characteristics. He's making this totalizing statement. He's saying the entirety of God's Hesed love, the entirety of God's love is better than life itself. And that's a massive statement for someone in the Old Testament, for an Old Testament person to make, an Israelite to make, because life itself was the greatest good. It was the chief end for which they longed for. And life in its fullness, not only for themselves, but for the generations to come after them. That's why it's so important for them to have generations to come. Abraham will have a name that lives on forever in his descendants. And we heard that read even this morning from Galatians, that his name lives on in you and I as adopted sons and daughters of Abraham through Jesus. And so for David to say that your Hesed love is better than life itself, that's about the greatest statement you could ever make. God's glorious power to save his people clearly displayed in his past acts of redemption reveal his Hesed love. God's love is relational. Right? It's covenantal. It is the force of his commitment to us as his people and the certainty that he will fulfill all his promises. And we can be sure of that because it endures. It is enduring and it has mercy and forgiveness written all over it. The vision that David received in worship of God's glorious power taught him the real value of God's Hesed love. It is better than life itself. It is better than life itself. And similarly, this is what the Apostle Paul learned to value about God's Hesed love in his own life and in the life of the church. However, he didn't receive this vision in worship in the temple or in a church service, he received this vision of the embodiment of God in Jesus Christ. God's Hesed love embodied in the risen Jesus who met him on the road to Damascus. He receives that vision of God's glorious power embodied in God's Hesed love in Jesus. And he can say this in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, I count everything as loss. I count everything. He's just recounted all that he has in life. From his credentials to his family record to his place in Jewish society, I, could count, I, I count my life as loss. It all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, of knowing God's Hesed love. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, as dung 
in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. That I might know him and the power, the glorious power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, wilderness experiences, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Jesus in his incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension is the ultimate embodiment and expression of God's Hesed love. For in Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, God ultimately saves us. He ultimately sustains our life by his Spirit's enduring presence. He answers his wrath against us in Jesus. He enables us to draw near to his throne through Jesus, our great high priest. And he abundantly blesses us in this life and in the life of the new creation to come through his love, found only in Jesus. And like David, this ought to draw our entire being, our whole person, mind, body, and soul into praise and worship of the triune God and his glorious power at work for us to save us and to give us life, true life, enduring life, life that is better than this life, more enduring. God's glorious power provides us with the hope that we, that he may yet act in deliverance now and his hesed love offers us the courage to remain faithfully committed to him in the face of difficult circumstances, even, even in the face of the possibility of death. That's what David is saying. That's what Paul is saying. Those are the lessons they learned after seeing a vision of God's glorious power and love. And it is with this commitment that David begins this psalm. And this is what we need to follow. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. My personal God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. When in the wilderness, faced with the daunting circumstances and feeling isolated from God, David responds first by stating his personal commitment to God. This is huge, Christ Church. His personal commitment to God was the first thing out of his mouth when he's responding to this. He will not allow the circumstances that he faces to have the first and defining word, to set the terms of the conversation, to set the terms of his prayer. He will allow only his commitment to God as he's been revealed in his glorious power and love. He will not allow these circumstances to define or turn him away from God. You see, when we come to see that God's hesed love as revealed in Jesus is more valuable and more satisfying than life itself, then we are at the place where we begin to embody commitment to God, the type of commitment to God and response to God that Jesus calls all his disciples to in our gospel reading in Luke. We're enabled only because of the vision of God's glorious power and necessity love to deny our life. To deny ourselves, to take up our crosses daily, and to follow Jesus. Christ Church, we, we 
We need this. Please listen. We need this. We've lived a paradise of a life as a church for a long, long time. And things are changing. We pray that they don't change, but things are changing. You need to be ready for a wilderness. You need to see the vision of God's glorious power revealed in what we're doing this morning. In his word and sacrament where God's glorious power in Jesus is revealed and reenacted to us. And it's shown to us to be his love. Because that's the only thing that will sustain us. And will sustain the kind of commitment that David and Jesus and Paul call us to. A commitment that denies our life for the sake of our love for God and his love for us. And denies our life for our love for our neighbors. May God help us to do that. May he give us that vision and may he root it deep in our hearts and may he form us into those type of worshipers who go from this place and lose their life and in doing so, find it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.